Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you have. And I wanted to give you an update on open enrollment, which is beginning any day now for many private employers. Most of us who have the good fortune of having health coverage through an employer or go through these open enrollment periods where you can change your coverage, potentially your deductibles, what your premiums are going to be, uh, possibly have access to an HSA plan. And I wanted to tell you one thing a lot of people were worried about earlier this year is not going to happen, and that is there are not going to be big increases in premiums for employer-provided coverage that you would do during employer-provided open enrollment, or if you're buying an individual plan, in most of the country, you're not going to see any large increases if you're buying a plan at healthcare.gov or your state equivalent website for an individual plan. The reason is the costs of providing care for coronavirus have not change the math for insurers for a particular crazy reason. You know how earlier this year I was talking about people who were not going to their doctor visits and people were even having heart attacks and they were refusing to go to the emergency room? Well, a lot of normal uh, medical that people would get, people weren't doing. And insurers actually have seen a significant benefit from lower utilization of medical services. And that's why there's not going to be big increases in premiums, except in odd, odd situations. But unlikely, and employers really don't want to rock the boat much with their employees for 21 in the open enrollments coming up. But if you are someone who has uh, changed employers this year, lost your job, got another one, the new job doesn't have health coverage, you then become eligible to buy coverage for yourself and if you have family members, family members as well, at the healthcare.gov site. And if your state has its own, they will refer you straight to it. And that starts next Sunday for the open enrollment period that is six weeks long for buying an individual health plan. And on there, you'll have a choice of color-coded plans that are bronze, silver, gold, or platinum. And the colors, as you go up, the colors, the premiums are higher, the coverage more robust. But I want you to know that if you don't qualify for subsidies on the exchanges, the premiums you pay are frightening. I mean, they are very, very large. The reason is the average cost of insurance for a family in the United States now from an employer, and it may not be what you're paying, but it's the overall cost of what you pay and the employer pays, is now over $21,000 a year. So you buy an individual policy it reflects similarly, and so the premiums are ginormous. On the 
individual exchange, though, most people who buy there qualify financially for some level of subsidy that reduces the premiums a great deal. But even when you get past the premiums, you got the deductibles that are pretty significant. If you wish, you can buy what I call a junk health insurance policy, which is one where you can buy it for a period of a year up to renewing two more times for a total of three years that does typically does not cover pre-existing, does not cover um, serious illnesses typically like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, but provides a base level of coverage with tight limits on total coverage with very cheap premiums. Uh, people argue about whether it's better than nothing or worse than nothing, but if the premiums at healthcare.gov or the state equivalent are out of sight, but you don't want to be completely uncovered, you can look at that. The other alternative is what's known as a faith-based health insurance policy. It's not really an insurance policy. A faith-based medical reimbursement plan that are offered by many religious organizations or religiously affiliated organizations where people of like mind and faith pool their money together and pay some, not all, of the medical expenses of people in the pool. The risk is if you get a couple of people with a very serious illness, the pool can run out of money, but the premiums are much, much cheaper. It's time for your questions you posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel take turns, and Kim, you're up. This is from Greg in Georgia. Greg says, I have started a nonprofit and I'm looking for a bank. Do you have any recommendations on how to find a bank or a credit union for a nonprofit? I anticipate this growing into a large organization over the next several years. Well, I love it that you are doing a passion of yours, uh, setting up a nonprofit that can serve others. And as far as finding an institution, rule number one, Stay away from any uh, very large national bank. We have four giant monster megas, Bank of America, Chase, City, and Wells Fargo. They are ultra expensive to do business with. Avoid them. Um, there are a small number of truly local banks, and they would be a great place for you to go. And any of a number of credit unions do accounts for nonprofits. The big advantage of you going to a credit union is generally they have accounts that are free of fees and minimum balances for your nonprofit, which make them a wonderful local choice for you. Joel? Clark John in Michigan says, love the show. I look forward to it every evening. I heard you say to have one Visa and one MasterCard to help your credit score. Recently, my credit union changed my card from a Visa to a MasterCard, leaving me with two MasterCards. So should I get another card with a, a Visa logo on it? My credit score is in the 780 range. So interested in your opinion. Well, first of all, fantastic, your uh, 780 credit score. Second, um, there's not necessarily a magic in having a Visa and a MasterCard. There once was, but now pretty much the acceptance is universal for both of them. What's important is that they be from more than one financial institution. So as long as both of your cards are from different places, you followed my Noah's Ark rule and you are A-OK. -okay. 
you want to have two major credit cards minimum from American Express, Discover, Visa, MasterCard. Those are major cards that are looked at with the highest amount of respect in how they're reflected in the credit scoring models. Store cards, by comparison, are looked at as junk credit, and many times in the scoring models, you will actually be punished for having store cards where you are rewarded in your credit score and mix having the major cards. Kim? Stacy in Texas says, my mother, who is nearing the end of her battle with cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. I know. Has gifted each of my kids $15,000. They're 12 and 16, and we want to know where we should be putting this money until they're old enough to make good choices with it. What I recommend is that you open um, brokerage accounts for them. If the 16-year-old is working, the money should go, um, you can put... Uh, up to what your 16-year-old would have earned in 2020, you can put six of the 15 into a Roth IRA. In January, put another six into a Roth IRA. And that way, the money grows tax-free for your 16-year-old with the, um, the big push being that that's money that grows tax-free all the way to the point of retirement for your 16-year-old. So it would be a long time leaving that money alone. For a 12-year-old, uh, likely but possibly working, but likely not, um, again, it would be a brokerage account with a discount broker. Uh, the three bigs are Schwab, Fidelity, and Vanguard. And with them, the money can go into, if you do a Roth for the 16-year-old, Put it in the target retirement fund. I think 2065 is the latest year you can put the money in. Um, if you do it at Fidelity, make sure it's the the target index fund, not their regular one, because it has much lower costs. But for the investment money, I think something simple like a total stock market index fund would be where you could put that 15000 for the 12-year-old and the remainder, if there is money you can put in a Roth for the 16-year-old, put it in a target retirement, I'm sorry, in a total stock market index fund, sometimes referred to as a broad stock market index fund. That's a fund that owns little pieces of thousands of U.S. companies, so it gives wide diversification of the money across the U.S. market. Short term, that can lose money during a slump in the stock market. Long term, it would generate tremendous growth for your teenagers well preteen and teenager and has very very favorable tax treatment through the years joel clark thomas in california says i was curious what's the deal with timeshare tour vacations i often see ads for free or discounted vacations which in exchange you need to sit through a timeshare presentation i would be more than willing to sit through a two or three hour presentation in exchange for a cheap vacation. I consider it like paying my dues. But is there some catch I need to look out for? If you don't purchase the timeshare, do you get charged full price? Uh, two years ago, I stayed at a resort in Vegas where they tried to offer me this as I was checking in. I wanted to accept the offer and was willing to sacrifice a couple hours of my vacation for it, but I was afraid that there might be some sort of catch, so I declined. Okay, so the catch is you. The close rate when people do a destination trip that involves a timeshare presentation while they're at the destination 
has a very high close rate that I've heard is somewhere around 38%. That you have more than one in three people who, when they're at the place, have this excitement about it and are more likely to buy the timeshare. If you were sure that no matter what they tell you, no matter what they say, you will never bend, you will never buy, then do it as you're getting a heavily subsidized vacation. They may uh, cause you to have a headache or an upset stomach through the presentation, but you'll get a vacation ultra cheap and store brand Tums or ibuprofen, not very expensive. Joseph joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Joseph. Hey, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. I'm a huge fan. Well, great to have you here. And you are what's known as a serial refinancer. I suspected that might be the case. I We've been our, in our house for about six years. I'm pretty sure this is going to be our fifth free, completely free refinance we're doing. So you're doing no closing costs refis one after another after another, and you've just ridden the interest rate curve down, down, down. Yeah, why not? I, I've got this broker that's great to work with, and she keeps on giving me a lower and lower rate, and I follow the numbers really closely to make sure that there aren't any gimmicks, um, and it's worked out really well so far. And what are you looking at this time is the interest rate on a no-closing refi? We're doing a 20-year at 2.75. <laughs> That's like free money, you know. Yeah, pretty good. That's great. All right, well, how can I be of service to you? Because it sounds like you were just a uh, service to your fellow listener. Well, we're, we just locked in the new rate. And my brother's going through a refinance also. We were kind of sharing notes. And I told him, I was like, you know, I've done this before just to streamline the entire process. I've told my broker that my wife doesn't really need to be on the mortgage. We can do the whole process with my finances. And then what the broker does is she has me sign a paper. Um, I, I, I don't know when it's dated. I think it's dated a couple of days after the closing of the mortgage. But it, it puts her name on the house. So she has ownership of the house, but she's not on the mortgage. Now, see, that's and, quite a good husband there. That's great. <laughs> well, I mean, we've got a strong marriage. We've got really healthy finances. And I just look at this refinance as a pure business transaction. I don't really see any risks there. But my brother was just like blown away by this. And he, he's saying, no, no, no. Like you really should have both your names on every legal document uh, just in case something were to happen. And Okay. So the, the, really something that could happen that would be the risk is if you were to die and this balance is still outstanding. That's the risk to your wife. The mortgage company would be willing to work with her or, I mean, she'd have a, life insurance policy that would pay for it so she'd have a little bit of leeway to i don't know yeah pretty much pretty much if you were to unexpectedly die if she had insurance proceeds and she could just blow out the mortgage uh she could do it at that point the flexibility that she loses i mean the advantage i get is that it makes the paperwork process that's a bit of a grind half as difficult because you're only having to get one of your uh, endless paperwork together instead of both of you. And that's a real advantage, no doubt. 
But the disadvantage is in the unlikely event you would pass away, it gives her less flexibility because the lender is going to call the mortgage due and she would have to uh, either refi in her own name alone uh, or the opposite of what you're doing right now, or she'd just have to pay off the mortgage. And as long as you're both aware of that and you're not really worried about the difficulty if you were to unexpectedly pass away i think what you're doing is just fine and your brother is being a good brother saying wait a minute i'm not sure how i feel about that but as long as you know that's how it plays you're good great to have you here on the clark howard show where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off we're in a big, uh, what they call, upgrade wave in the cell phone industry right now as the two bigs of the cell phone world, iPhone and Samsung, are very actively pushing their 5G cell phones, and the cell phone carriers are right in there with them, trying to get you to upgrade because the cell phone carriers are spending untold billions of dollars lighting up the three types of 5g and just if you haven't heard me explain that when you see all this stuff about 5g your phone could hit three different offerings of 5g depending on where you are at that instant either one that gives you wider coverage in areas where coverage was not reliable before it's not going to be particularly fast and then uh 5g that will not cover as much territory, but will be roughly 10 times faster than you've had with 4G. And then typically in dense urban corridors, the 5G that is as fast or faster than many of us have with wired home internet service. So you hear 5G, but it's a big mass of confusion. The one thing that's not confusing is the cell phone carriers really want you to carry a 5G handset. And Apple and Samsung and the lesser players in the sale of phones really want to use 5G as a way to get people who've been holding onto their phones much longer than in the past to get a new phone. And 5G is kind of like the shiny object they're trying to use to get you to get a new phone. On the should you get a new phone, that's really up to you. Producer Joel and I had a conversation recently about Joel buying a new phone. And Joel, you bought the new Google 4A that was, was it $350? That's right, yep. And I'm like, Joel, you should have spent 500 and gotten the 4A 5G. And you were like, the 5G stuff is garbage. I don't need it. <laughs> Is that about right? That's pretty much it. Yeah. So time will tell if me trying to get you to spend $150 more would have been a good idea or you saving the 150 was the right idea. But regardless, people are interested for the first time in 5G. Apple's got their 12s that are all 5G. And as I shared with you recently on the show, the most aggressive offers to try to get you to upgrade to an iPhone 12 from the cell phone carriers 
is from AT&T because they're a very weak market position right now. They're offering a lot of trade-in money to get you to trade in your old iPhone on a new one. Verizon, not as aggressive. T-Mobile, not as aggressive. But if you are someone who is comfortable being on AT&T's network, very, very aggressive trade-in available right now that could even theoretically potentially make a new iPhone 12 free for you if you stay with AT&T for the next two and a half years. Verizon's trade-in deal, you have to stay with them two years. T-Mobile's two and a half years as well, like AT&T. But the trade-in money, not as generous from either of those as it is from AT&T. Uh, but what if you're not part of any of those cycles and you're not seeing some kind of great trade-in deal from the cell phone carriers, there are now online buyers that will make offers for your phone. And we recently did a price check and found enormous trade-in differences in what people would offer from phone to phone that you would trade in. As usual, the one that you can physically go to that has ATM kind of machines around the country, Echo ATM or Eco ATM, uh, offered the lowest trade-in value when we checked. And Gazelle, which used to be a really solid choice when we checked, offered the second lowest amount of money. But among the others, there were real differences from company to company as far as what was available uh and there are even sites now that claim to be kind of like a price comparison thing, price comparison tool like sellcell.com, S-E-L-L-C-E-L-L.com. Although the LA Times, when they tested it, found that sometimes the price that they quoted was not the same as what people got when they went directly to a site. But taking a half hour when you're trying to get top dollar for the phone you have is a really, really good idea. And we have a simply written article headline, the best places to sell your cell phone that you can check out at Clark.com. Just put that in the search box, sell your cell phone. After the ads that will pop up, you'll see our story about how to price comparison shop and various sites that you might want to try to look for the best deal. And remember, there will be great deals on cell phones generally during the month of November, because Black Friday will be a month-long activity instead of uh, activity from Thanksgiving Day through that Sunday. It's time for your questions you've posted for me at clark.com slash ask him and joel take turns whose turn that would be me and this is from clay in mississippi clay says we recently inherited a jewelry box inside to our surprise we found a round three carat loose diamond there's no appraisals or documentation for the stone in the box. We've done many at-home tests to confirm that it's actually a diamond. We've done a fog, scratch, magnified inspection. And I'm waiting on a diamond pen tester to arrive for another layer of confirmation. Assuming it passes that test, where do we start on getting a reputable appraisal? And then how would we sell the diamond for max profit? 
So that's really wild that there was a diamond, a loose diamond in there. You start with a graduate gemologist. Graduate gemologist is a level of training trained by the GIA. And if you search online GIA graduate gemologist and where you live, it will show you where graduate gemologists are near where you are. Graduate gemologists will do what's called map the stone, where they will be able to draw for you what flaws are in it and what quality the diamond is. They will uh, properly weigh it for carat weight. They will give it a color rating and a clarity rating. And so with that mapping from the graduate gemologist, you can then go to jewelers near you who buy diamonds as well as sell them and take your mapping with you from the GIA uh, graduate gemologist and they will make you an offer on the stone. The offer you will get will be a low wholesale offer, but uh, go to different places and see. If the graduate gemologist says to you, the stone is not great, then consider if you find the stone to be beautiful, keeping it in the family and somebody can wear it. And that would be an alternative. And there are not a lot of easy ways to sell a loose stone. You will see a lot of sellers on eBay attempting to sell them and having a, a graduate gemologist report would potentially help you with the value of selling on eBay, but selling locally or regionally is probably the better idea. Joel? Clark Tawana in Georgia says, I have a Capital One credit card. It had a $8,300 credit card limit, and they recently sent me a letter stating they're dropping my limit to $2,000 because of non-use to the credit limit max. This drop in my credit limit has caused my credit score to drop by 12 points. I called a representative and they said, because I have not used the credit card to their standards, that's the reason for this. I'm so upset. What can I do to get my credit score points back? Fortunately, it's only 12 points. Go apply for another card with someone else. Capital One, more aggressive than others at curtailing limits or closing accounts that have had low levels or no levels of activity. What they're worried about at Capital One, and also other issuers are worried, but nobody seems to be as worried as Capital One, is that what are known as back-of-the-wallet cards, cards that people use infrequently or have not used in a good while, that those cards people are going to reach for because of extended periods of unemployment and start uh, charging them up to the limit that they might default on later. So with any card, you know, I've talked in the past about keeping your cards active. In your case, too late for that. Go apply for another card, hopefully at a credit union or somewhere else, and get another card pronto, and that will raise your available limits again. But if you hear me about this and you think, wow, yeah, I got this card and that card I haven't used in a long, long time, get them out and use them. One suggestion that was a nice one, from a listener was that you set up a automatic payment like let's say you have netflix or something a small monthly automatic transaction that charges that card that will show continuing activity on a card 
and make it less likely to be one that will be shut off or have the limit greatly reduced by the lender. Kim? Clark, Paul in Ohio wants to know, how long should I be keeping pay stubs from my employer? You only need to keep the last one of each annual cycle. So when you get your next pay stub, the prior ones can go. It's just important to have your most recent pay stub in the unlikely event that an employer fails and never issues you a W-2, which unfortunately does happen, and we get that question anytime there's a significant recession. And so your last pay stub becomes a de facto substitute for your W-2. Joel? Clark Sandra in Georgia says, my credit card number has been stolen again after making online purchases on two secure, well-known sites. How do I prevent this from happening, and how are these stolen if we're on secure sites? I don't even know how it's happening. There are many, many ways that you could have a problem with this where somebody is able to intercept your card number. You don't know if they have any kind of logging program on your computer or something like that. The best thing is to use a system like, uh, there's one called privacy.com that we've had questions about before, or with your existing issuers, see if you can get a one-time use credit card number for online purchases that can automatically be done. But check out privacy.com is a way with what you've got to be able to have a very simple way to make it more difficult for your card numbers to be intercepted when you shop online. Marianne is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. Marianne, I'm really sorry to hear your husband just got laid off. Is he likely for callback or is it Mm, over, over? Probably over, I would imagine. I'm sorry. How can I be of service? Because that is no fun. Yeah. Um, Well, I think we'll do all right financially, but it's just getting to where we have to be in order to function. Um, I have accounts. I have a brokerage account at Vanguard, and I was initially thinking of trying to bring all the 401ks because we have 401ks between him and I at five different companies (laughs) that we've accumulated through our lives. So I was thinking about bringing him over to Vanguard, but I know that Vanguard is a little bit tough to get in touch with. They took their phone number off their website for a while, and I'm iffy about bringing it, all that money over to them. So I'm wondering, is maybe Fidelity a better way to go? Well, the advantage of Fidelity is that they have actual physical offices. Right. And with Vanguard, everything you do is online or over the phone. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've really picked on Vanguard for making it tough for people to find a phone number. I think that's really ridiculous when you're being trusted with people's money. But, uh, they're very different kinds of companies. You know, um, Fidelity is, uh, is a very successful organization that is one that is more sales-oriented than Vanguard. And Fidelity has... Uh, very, very low-cost investments available, including some that are free, what are called the zero funds, and right. then more expensive stuff, where mm-hmm. Vanguard is all about cheap. So okay. if you feel like you want more attention, Fidelity is a better place probably for you to go than Vanguard. 
but just be mindful that as things are recommended to you by someone at Fidelity, you want to know what the expenses are for the things that they're recommending. Okay. Um, but they are, I mean, they're both great companies, just they have their pluses and minuses, but especially because you're at a point in your life, it sounds like, so this is, this is a layoff that's essentially an early retirement. Yeah, probably. So in that case, having a place you can go to where you can go talk with somebody in person, all that, I think is valuable. Mm-hmm. So, so that Fidelity would tend- might be a better choice. Is it, are the expenses from one to the other? Because I was thinking Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, because I listen to you all the time. Uh, so if I need to go and get advice, because at this point, I just really have to know, how do I invest all of this so that it'll last until we're like 90? Sure. And I also need to know how much we can take out each year to live on, basically, and still maybe leave something to my kids. So amongst the three of them, are they similarly priced, do you think, for that kind of um, advice? Uh, so you bring up a really great choice, uh, thought about the three of them. So I would actually call all three of them and have a list of questions to ask and hear how each of them answers those questions and how thoughtful they are, where generally you want to talk with a retirement specialist. At each of them, it's like a job classification they use at these kind of firms. And see how really thought out and how clear they are. You'll have a winner emerge after you talk to the three of them as to who is going to have the the best ability to guide you to see that you're going to have enough money, you're going to be okay, and how they would recommend that your money actually be allocated with these five 401ks you'd bring in, the other money you would bring to one of the three firms. You want to interview them like if you were going out looking for a job and they're interviewing you, you want to do that with these firms about your money. And I want to wish both of you the best at this new phase of your lives. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.